Hello and welcome again. I'm Gary Rosenberg, and you're listening to A Rabbi and a Skeptic Engage in Conversation. I'll be speaking to Rabbi Alon Tolwin of Asia Torah. Our topic today will be How does Judaism relate to other religions? So here's my guest, Rabbi Alon Tolwin. Good to see you, sir. It is my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. How does a Jewish person relate to other religions? And what I mean by that, you can take it wherever you want to go, but I, I, I think of it in these, in these ways. I'll be talking to friends of mine who went through Catholic school, and they are brutally miserable about Catholicism. Not all of them, but some of them have had a terrible experience because uh, whatever, in the 60s or 70s, uh, it was not a delightful place to go to school for many of them. And then they start talking about the King James Bible, and then they start talking about some of the rules that they live with and their understanding of religion and their understanding of God. And that you, they'll say things like, you know, well, uh, you can lead a terrible life, and then accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior on your deathbed, and presto, that's all you need, and you get into heaven. And they feel that religion is a bunch of crap. All organized religions are a bunch of crap, because that's the one that they know. And I don't want to go, yeah, but my religion's better than that. It says lots of cool stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you deal with that in conversation? I don't want, yeah, well, you know, you should try mine, because the Jews don't proselytize. So that's another topic, but it's related. So when it comes to relating to non-Jewish religions, you having been an Orthodox rabbi for decades. That's a long time. Yeah, well, <laughs> get used to it. It, uh, it must come up. It comes up. And when it comes up, do you downplay it because that's the kind of guy you are? Or do you, do you have, some people wade in, don't they? Yeah. yeah Probably I'm, not rabbis. A rabbi doesn't have to wade in. They, they're not having a, a competition as to whose religion right, is right, yeah, right, which religion is better. That's, that's a thing for, for us uh, amateurs. But as a professional Jew, which is what a rabbi is, I guess so. I think. Um, <laughs> tell, me, tell me something about how, how this happens in, in your world, in your experience. All right, so let me tell you a great story. We have a home in central Michigan. In, we call it a neighborhood on a little lake, 55 acres. It's only about 18 feet deep. We drink the water. It's the same water as Ice Mountain, right? We filter it and drink it in our house. And we have some neighbors that are very religious. And when we first moved in, it's a whole story how we got the place and the neighbors, and they never met religious Jews before. And it was really all one family, but someone... And the family broke and sold their piece of, broke with the family and sold their piece of land to an outsider. And the outsider got into a fight with the family. And to get back at them, when his wife died, he sold the property to the Jews. Figuring, oh, that'll, that'll, that'll teach him. That'll teach him a lesson. <laughs> well, needless to say, I wouldn't even just say it backfired. Some of our, some of the most beloved people in our life are these Gentile neighbors of ours, literally. One day, 
The mother approaches me and says, Alone, you know, I have to tell you that I had to castigate your son. They have a son, we have a son about the same age at the time, they were 12 or 13 years old. I had to rebuke him, I think was the word. I had to rebuke your son. So this is interesting. I said, yeah, what, what's the story? So it's fascinating. She didn't tell me what they did, but she says, I told your son, Noah, you're a Jew, and I'm a Gentile. And we have to learn morality from you. And if you're not going to behave morally, then I can't allow you to play with my children anymore. Wow. Wow. She never told me what they did. I'm assuming some kind of, you know, prepubescent male stuff. Troublemaking. Yeah. Troublemaking. Right. Afterwards, I caught my kid. I say, what did Glenda, what happened? And he looks like, had to fear the Lord in him. And he says, well, I'm telling you, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> so, I, again, it's a story. But oh, he didn't tell you what he did? He No. And I didn't ask. And, and my neighbor never told me because she's extremely moral and she will not gossip. It's unnecessary for you to know. All you have to know is that I rebuked him and I wanted your approval with my rebuke. But the lesson was amazing. Where does this person come off knowing that you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile and we have to learn morality from you? Another story which is amazing. You know, when I was a programmer at Ford for many years, my boss, and I just want to say his name because I will forever remember him in kindness, was a guy named George Maiko. I've looked him up. I can't find him. We were in the, working for the industrial engineers, and he had never run into an Orthodox Jew before. He drove 15 miles from Dearborn up to Oak Park to pick up a Jewish calendar so he could be more sensitive to my requirements for working. Beautiful. On and on and on. So we were moving from the pilot plant down in Dearborn to world headquarters. And um, it was right around the high holiday period. And I had used up all of my holiday pay days, vacation days with pay. And all I had was personal days without pay. So George approaches me and says, Alan, you know, we're moving. Uh, from the pilot plant, and it's it's going to take about two weeks, and uh, we're not going to need your services. So um, did you already, because I know your high holidays are coming up, did you already put in vacation? So I said, no. He says, because, you know, if you put in vacation, you're, you have no more paid holidays left, and you have to take that whole time off, and I know you got seven kids, and it's going to hurt you. So I said, yeah. So he says, I already put in that we don't need you for a month during the move. So therefore, you're going to get paid for the holidays that you're going to have, and you don't have to come in for work. Wow. Wow. I went home, and it bothered me. It bothered me. Now, this mm -hmm. is showing a little bit of my bias. But I went to Rabbi Irons here, one of the chief rabbinical figures in the city, and I said, that is so profoundly kind. This guy, he doesn't have to be nice to me. He goes, gets a Jewish calendar, looks at the calendar, finds out when the holidays are, and he arranges the move of the whole department of industrial engineers in order that I should have a month off with pay. And I can celebrate my holidays. 
So Rabbi Iron smiles, looks at me, and says, where do you think they learn that from? They learn it from us. Okay, now, let's fast back. We have to remember that before Abraham came along, the world had devolved into pantheism, polytheism, idolatry of the most debauched forms. People were literally worshiping the crocodile gods in Egypt and and pushing their daughters into the volcanoes to protect themselves from devastation. And Abraham was not a religionist. He was a scientist. Abraham was first cousins with Einstein, and he was looking for the underlying unified principle of everything. And he said, you know, it's not possible that there should be millions of little deities that are running everything here. You pray for rain, and then the God steps up and says, I'll make it rain. You get too much rain, you have to call up the, uh, I don't know who The towel god. The towel god. (laughs) (laughs) Dry everything up. Right, dry everything up, and on and on and on. And everybody's got their pantheon of gods, and Abraham says, this doesn't make any sense. Because you see, ultimately, there's an underlying harmony. And let's follow the lead of this underlying harmony and see if we can come up with something. He came up with something. It's called monotheism. The fascinating thing is, if you take a look at monotheism, it's not religion. Science only exists in cultures that had monotheism. The Japanese weren't scientists. The Chinese weren't scientists. The Buddhists and the Hindu and the Shinto. They were technicians, but they never looked for causes. They never looked for science. Another thing is music. Real music, the, the Baroque and the music of, of, of Europe only, existence, only existed where there's monotheism. Because only what monotheism did was introduce the concept of harmony. Not just physical harmony in the sense of science, but harmony in the sense of music, in the sense of art. Other cultures, the art is very, very mono uh, dimensional. Is that the right word? Sure. It'll work. And again, you might find exceptions, but I think that's true. And that's what Abraham did. Maimonides says something. I mean, this is a this is a whole like opening dialogue over here, but then we can take it wherever it goes. There's a Maimonides at the end of his major work asks where in which he deals with the end of time and the epic of the messiah which by the way isn't it interesting that we jews have introduced the concept of messiah to the world and the end the good guys will win and everyone's bought it so maimonides asks why is it that god made it that there's christianity and islam right and then he gives an unbelievable answer he says Bottom line is, Islam and Christianity succeeded where Judaism failed, and that is to bring the concept of monotheism to the rest of the human race. He says, now, if you go to any far-out island or any nation, who knows where it is, they've all heard about a concept of one God. They all have a messianic concept, which means, number one, this is mind-boggling, is that ultimately to bring the human race salvation, there's going to be a certain degree of disaster, but in the long run, it's worth it. 
You know, you're gonna, we're going to have to suffer being tackled if we're going to make it into the end zone. That might be a simple metaphor. He says, but the Jews failed in doing it, and they've succeeded. And ultimately, he says, when the real Redeemer comes, they'll realize that they, um, they were wrong, except they'll all be better off at that point. So now, with that, how do we view religions? We have to understand that they are God-sent, and they're God-sent to bring ethical monotheism to the rest of the human race, something we were sent to do, and for whatever reason, we haven't been successful in doing it. Number two is, on a personal level, individual level, I should say, like, for instance, our neighbor, these religions have lifted people. They're not barbarians anymore. They are looking for truth. They are aware of their need for meaning. And even though everyone has a, and Jews too, by the way, have a tendency to look down at anyone else who doesn't believe like them, bottom line is they've helped the world a lot. And when our neighbor comes and talks about being blessed by Jesus, the way I frame it is they're calling God Jesus. I have no problems with that. Just like the Muslims call God Allah. I have no problems with that. So let's, let's make a conversation out of that. I mean, there, there are all sorts of nuances, because once you get into Roman Catholic and, and other forms of Christianity, then there's all sorts of nuances. They believe in the Virgin Mother. They don't believe in the Virgin Mother. You know, I mean, the bottom line, I don't think it really matters if, if the religion is going to help people be moral and responsible, then it's a good thing. If it's going to turn them into a bunch of fanatics and as they say, you better believe like me, or I'm going to kill you, then it's a bad thing. Well, that, I think that kind of puts a ribbon, uh, a bow on, on this part of the discussion, because you have just demonstrated that that's how you deal with other religions, is they're, they're great. They are what they are, and they're all, it's all part of, uh, they're all created by God. And, and you're not saying ours is better. You're saying, look what they've accomplished that we haven't. Right. So that is a charitable way to look at people who don't believe as you do. And that helps me a lot understand it. Now, you mentioned Abraham. So you're talking about the Abrahamic religions, which is a, probably, I guess, a, a huge percentage of the population of the world believes in one of those three. Um, Abraham, I mean, I don't know if historically if he was a real guy. I don't know. I mean, he's in the Bible, and that doesn't mean it's not a history book. And, and the interesting thing is, if you go to the Muslim, they'll tell you it all started with Abraham. It's just the Christians and the Jews are partially wrong. If you go to the Christians, they'll say it all belonged with Abraham. But the Jews and the Muslims are partially wrong. If you go to the Jews, they'll say it all started with Abraham, and the Muslims and the Christians are mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, they came after us. Right. Um, so Abraham, my favorite story, one of my favorite stories from, from the teachings, and, and you can tell the story better than I can about Abraham and the visitors. He's talking to God. You remember the story? Oh, right, yeah. You tell that because then I want to add on to it. Okay, so 
God comes to comes to Abraham early on in his career, I, and his just, career. Now, Abraham's career is the, the career of talking to God. No, meaning a seeker. A seeker. That's a professional. That's a profession. I just what? made it a professional. <laughs> so, all right, and and he's living his life. And he's he's discovered the one God, and God comes to him and says, "You are right. I want to enter into a covenant with you." So Abraham says, "Sure." Was it? What does it entail? He says, "You're going to have to circumcise yourself." Abraham wasn't sure if he was going to do it or not. So he had three friends, and he consults with his friends, and the consensus was, "They should go ahead and do it." Hey, God comes and tells you he wants to be your partner. You know, you gotta be crazy. Now his three friends had never talked to God themselves. No, they had not. They just believed him. Yes. They said, "Oh, you discovered the one God, and uh, you have this." And it makes sense to them. It made sense. They to become them. followers. They are called Bolivars. They're called his cohorts. Okay. Right. They they're, were they're allies. His, they're his, his homies. They were his homies. Right. Okay. So Abraham goes ahead and he circumcises himself and members of his household. And then on the third day, which the Talmud says is the most painful after the circumcision, he's sitting at the entrance to his tent. Because he always had this tent in the major crossroad so that people would be traversing traversing the desert, would stop in, he would invite them in and give them food and water, give them a place to rest, and then send them on their way. Uh, it was God made it particularly hot that day so that no one would be out on the roads. And Abraham's out there really upset that there's no one on the roads. Just, what, no one's traveling today? Someone's got to be traveling today. <coughs> so it's very cute. So God says, oh, listen, I was trying to spare him, but I see he's more miserable because he doesn't have guests. Okay. He disguises three angels as, as Arab merchants, and they're trudging, drudging, trudging through the desert, and they're looking miserable and thirsty. And Abraham is talking to God, and because God comes by and says, Hey, Abe, how are you feeling today? And I'm feeling okay, but I'm just, you know, like, what's going on? You know, UPS is not delivering. There's a strike or something. I don't He's know. operating a filling station, and yeah. nobody, nobody wants gas. No one wants gas. <laughs> so he looks up, and there's these three Arabs. So he says to God, Hey, wait a second. Don't go away. I'm going to go get these guys and bring them into my filling station. Okay. So the Talmud says, from here you see that it's more important to have guests than it is to be with God. It's more important to treat your guests the way you want no, to treat them. Right. Oh, just to have them in. Just to have them in. Just to have guests in. Because he put God on hold. He said, hey, God, wait a second. I'm going to go bring the guests in. Yeah, I'll get back to you. I'll get back. I got something I got to do. Right. And these guys, they ordered coffee, you know, and, 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 and pancakes and... Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> and he and he he gave their camels water, and right, yeah, he sent them on their way, and then he went back to his discussion with God. With God, right. And from this story, I have to relate a story when you and I went to Israel, and we were walking through the old city of Jerusalem, and at that moment, it, it looked like an M.C. Escher drawing. There's like staircases going this way and that way expect to see people walking upside down it looks like it was pieced together with with legos or something and you see an old friend like 50 feet away and you guys recognize each other and he's waving at you and you're waving at him 
and you're we're clearly going to figure out how to meet him halfway through this maze of ridiculous architecture. And I'm it's our first day in Israel, and uh, he finally walks up to us, and then he does something amazing, which I always interpreted as him having learned the lesson from that story of Abraham. And that was that he came up to me while you stood there, and he shook my hand warmly, and he introduced himself, and he asked me my name. He said, you're traveling with a loan. That's fantastic. It's so great to meet you. Is this your first trip? He gave me 30 seconds of, uh, I'm getting choked up. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. He gave me 30 seconds of, uh, of warmth because I was the traveler. I was the, 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 the odd man out. And that 30 seconds was over, and then he turned to you and you guys embraced. We hadn't seen each other in who knows how long, many, many, many years. And uh, I related that to the story of Abraham. Right. It's unbelievable. He, he, by the way, fabulous. He's Rabbi in Phoenix. Still, still forever a dear friend. You know, when I, um, and when I think of that story, I had some guests over one night and somebody brought a, a, a partner who nobody knew. Everybody knew everybody but this one person. And I thought, this is my chance to use what I've learned and, and seek that person out and make sure that they felt comfortable and welcomed and paid attention to and taken care of because my friend, you know, I'll say hi to him in a minute. He'll be fine. Yeah. In the meantime, I'm treating his guest in a way that probably surprised him. But uh, I know my kids have done that. And that came from that lesson. It's beautiful. Yeah. So going back to the story. Yeah, please. So people ask, the Talmud says, from here you learn that greeting guests is, takes precedence over being with God. Over, yeah, wow. So the That's cla- huge. That's right. crazy. But the next part is, so everyone asks, so we learn it from Abraham, but where did Abraham learn it from? Because you're in the presence of God. Like, you're going to say goodbye to God for a minute, for a minute, and go greet some mortal? So again, I'll quote Rabbi Weinberg, who said, Abraham understood that it's more important to be like God than to be with God. And I think that's the primary lesson that the Jewish people has been trying to convey. And I think that's where we split this concept of being godly is so central to our identity as Jews. Be godly. You'll find that uh, there's something called a Kiddush Hashem and a Chil Hashem. Sanctify or profane God's name. It's, you know, you're walking down the street with your little kid and he does something stupid. You hear the mother will say, that's, that's profane in God's name. People look at you as a Jew and see you as a representative of God. And we are. We're seen. I go shopping at, at Kroger's, and, and the deference that especially the old black people have, it makes me feel uncomfortable in some ways because I have deference for them. They have this pure spirituality which just glows. Yesterday I met an old woman at Beaumont. She says, are you a rabbi? 
have a blessed day, Rabbi. And I, I felt like I was blessed. You know, but that infuses me and I think the conscious Jewish community with a sense of being God's representative. And as such, we answer to a higher authority. We have to, we have to act in a certain way which is becoming of representatives of God. And that's a consciousness we need to have. Um, what's, what's your friend in Phoenix's name? Oh, that's Ariel Shoshan. I think we should dedicate this, this episode to him and send him a copy. Okay, we got a deal. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Have a great day. Gary, have a great day. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Come back again next week for more of The Rabbi and the Skeptic, Two Friends Talking. I'm Gary Rosenberg. If you have a question for the rabbi, send it to me at GA444RE at Gmail. We'll see you next week.